Good evening, and welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. I hope you'll have your Bible in front of you, either on your device or a physical paper Bible. Uh, follow along with me. You'll get more out of it that way. And we're looking tonight at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And here's an important reminder. We tend to read the Bible very individualistically. And I'm, when I say we, I mean 21st century Americans. We read it like God wrote the Bible to be an instruction manual for life just for me. And every word in the Bible is just so I'll know how to live. And that's not a completely wrong way to look at things. It's just not the best way to look at it. Let me explain what I mean. The letter we're reading, the, the book of the Bible we're studying right now, 1 Corinthians, is an actual letter that was written 2,000 years ago from Paul while he was in prison to the church in Corinth. Um, actually, he wasn't in prison, but nevertheless. It's a letter from Paul to an actual group of people. And when the pastor of that church got up on the next Sunday after that letter arrived, and he read the letter to the people of the church, nobody walked away saying, wow, Paul wrote me an important letter that I need to know, uh, I need to put it into practice in my own life. Although I'm sure every single one of them walked away saying, well, Paul's an apostle, and so these are certain ways I need to change the way I think and act. But for the most part, their focus was, this is what we need to do, not what I need to do. Now, let me explain why that's important. We're very individualistic as Christians today, and so it's all about us. And we don't look at the church the way we should. The church is important to God. Uh, the church matters to God. The church, the local church, and I'm not just talking about First Baptist Conroe, I mean every local church that proclaims Jesus as Lord is the, the tool he uses to get his work done on earth. He doesn't send angels. He doesn't bring back prophets from the dead. He doesn't speak audibly from the sky. He sends his church. And, and as I've been a pastor for quite a while, I've seen a lot of attitudes that Christians have toward the church itself that are wrong. And let me just list a few of them before we get into this particular passage tonight. One is this idea that this is my church. That is an attitude that a lot of Christians have, especially Christians who've been involved in one particular church for a long time. And I'm talking about good people. I'm talking about the kinds of people that every pastor wants in his church because they're faithful, they're there every time the doors are open, they tithe, they support the congregation in every single way, and yet, and yet they have a very possessive attitude about it. That this is my church, don't you ever think about changing anything about my church, uh, this is, don't, don't bring in a bunch of people who make this seem like something other than the church I grew up in because I want the church that I chose to join. I don't ever want it to change. That's one attitude. Another is the consumer Christianity attitude, where it's all about the programs that a church offers. You better have good preaching. You better have good music. You better have a great youth program and a great children's program. And you better have something for my age group and my life stage. And it's all about what you can offer. Not that any of those things are not important, because they are. And we should offer our best to God. But that's, that's where this whole mindset comes in of, treating a church like you would treat a restaurant or a health club. It's all about what it does for me, when in truth, we're supposed to be part of the body of Christ. And this also is where we get the whole celebrity pastor idea, which would, would have been so 
alien to the experience of any of the apostles, and we're going to look more into that later on in the passage. But the idea, if you would have, if you brought Paul from the first century to 2020 and you showed him American Christianity and he saw how we deify certain preachers, he would just be aghast. He would, he would be hard, it would be hard for him to understand how we could get to that place. And then there's the idea of, well, church is optional. You know, church is there. I'm glad it's there. And when it works out for me, when I don't have something to do with my family or I'm not working too hard, you know, when I feel like it, I'll show up. This idea that church is an optional part of your life, something extra, that's alien to the New Testament as well. And for all of these attitudes, Jesus, I think, says, hold on, be careful. You're talking about my wife here. Because remember, the church is the bride of Christ. It's clear from the New Testament that he takes the church much more seriously than we do. He cares about it. And, and what he cares about most is not how big a church gets or how small it is. It's not how big their buildings are, the size of their budget. It's none of those metrics that we tend to use. It's are you making disciples? Is the church producing people who look more like him as time goes by? So with that long introduction, let's get into chapter 3. Remember, chapter 2 ended with Paul talking about how natural people, people who don't have the Spirit of God inside them, cannot possibly understand spiritual truth. You can teach the Scriptures to them. You can even sit them down and let them read the Bible for themselves. But unless the Spirit is speaking to them, or unless they're willing to hear the Spirit speaking, Spiritual truth doesn't make any sense to them. So the natural man can't understand God's thoughts, but it, chapter 2 ends with this beautiful promise, but we have the mind of Christ. And so last week as we studied that, I hope that just filled you with inspiration and, and with a desire to read God's Word and with thankfulness that God would trust us with that. But the tone changes sharply at the start of chapter 3. Paul writes and says, But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, for you were not ready, or not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So again, Paul shifts gears very rapidly at the start of chapter 3 and calls the Corinthians children. And it's as big an insult in the first century as it would be today. I mean, nobody wants to be called a little baby. Nobody wants to be called a, a wee toddler. Uh, nobody wants to be called childish. And that's what Paul is calling the Corinthian Christians. And this is not the last time he'll say that. The most famous chapter in 1 Corinthians is chapter 13, the quote-unquote love chapter and Paul calls the Corinthians children in that chapter too, and probably several times in between now and then. So uh, again, Paul is insulting them for a purpose. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to help them see they need some change. Now, why is he calling them this? What is his evidence that you are children, incapable of solid food, of the flesh? In other words, you're not a spiritual person. You are a natural person. What's his evidence? Well, it all goes back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 17 that we read a few weeks ago. Remember when he said his, his very first instruction out of the box when he writes this letter, after the greetings and after the thanksgivings, 
Paul says, I'm really disturbed when I hear that there are divisions among you where some are saying, I believe in Paul, and others are saying, I believe in Apollos, and others are saying, I believe in Peter. And what he's talking about is the divisions in the Corinthian church were based on which preacher of the gospel, which apostle or, or other Bible teacher was the best. And that's evidence of their immaturity. Their lack of unity was evidence of their lack of, uh, of maturity. Remember, when we talk about unity, we have to define it the way the Bible does. Because we as American Christians, we tend to define unity as getting along, as keeping the peace. There's not any strife or drama, and there's not any yelling and screaming, and no one's leaving the church. Remember what I said Sunday, we're nice people. <laughs> we, we like to be nice, and so when everybody's being nice to one another, we think we're unified. But the Bible defines unity much more strictly than we do. In Scripture, unity is being of one mind. In other words, we're not just getting along with each other and keeping the peace and avoiding drama. We're actually all pulling in the same direction. We're actually headed together toward a common goal. And that's impossible if what's going on in Corinth is going on in us. So next, and we won't dwell there because that's basically a recap of what Paul said at the beginning of the letter. Then he makes the he takes the argument further in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So what he's saying is, why are you even arguing over this stuff? This is the dumbest argument I've ever heard. Who am I that you would fight for my uh, identity or fight for my... Uh, privileged position over against Apollos or Paul, uh, uh, Peter. We're, we're all just people. In fact, he goes further than that. He says, we're servants. We're servants of the Lord. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So not only does he compare himself and his fellow pastors to servants, they're farmhands. Now, keep something in mind. The Corinthian church was a lot like a lot of churches today, suburban churches like ours, where most of the people were what we would consider white-collar workers. They were educated, they were well-off. Uh, you know, we, we joke about a, a country club church. Cur the church in Corinth may have been the original country club church. They were elitists. They despised and scorned people who were manual laborers. So I think it's very pointed and intentional that Paul compares himself and Apollos to farmhands. And think about what he's saying. He's saying, if you eat a plate of corn on the cob, you're not sitting there arguing about which farmhand did the best job of pulling weeds. You're just saying, this is some really good corn. When you think about the church, it's not a matter of which preacher, which leader, which Bible teacher, which servant did the best job of leading that church, of leading people to Christ, of making disciples. What matters is that disciples have been made. In fact, in fact, this is really a meditation on what really produces spiritual growth. And the interesting thing is, Paul's conclusion is, we don't know what makes people grow. God does, but, but we don't. It just in the same way, a farmer doesn't know what makes a 
a corn plant grow out of the ground when he puts a corn. All he knows is I, I plant a seed, I water it, I maintain it, and eventually it grows and produces fruit. I don't make that happen. I don't even know how it happens. God's the one that makes that happen. And that's the same with spiritual growth. Only God can produce growth. And when it happens, therefore, we shouldn't get any credit for it. Only God gets the credit, not us. So he goes on in verse 8. He says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So what is he saying when he says, He who plants and he who waters are one? What he's saying is, I got here, I planted this church in Corinth. A lot of you know about Jesus because you first heard about him from me. If it wasn't for me, you know, I was the one who planted this church here, but then Apollos came in after me. Apollos is this eloquent speaker. We can imagine he drew huge crowds and people really grew under his teaching. Apollos watered the seed. Who gets the credit? Well, God does. Because neither Paul nor Apollos made disciples. God did. God just used Paul and Apollos the same way a farmhand is used in a field to produce a crop. Neither one gets the credit. In fact, let me say it this way. As far as I know, there's not anywhere on earth a preacher's hall of fame. You'll find a hall of fame for athletes of virtually every sport. You'll find a hall of fame for musicians. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, uh, Ohio, for instance. You'll find halls of fame for all sorts of people. Every president who's ever served has a museum dedicated to them, a presidential library. Even the worst president, whoever that might be, has his own place, his own hall of fame. There's no preacher's hall of fame, as far as I know. And if there is, there shouldn't be, because we don't really get to decide who's the effective preacher, the effective disciple maker. We can see who's built the largest following. I mean, as far as I know, Billy Graham preached the gospel to more people than anybody else in human history. And by my reckoning, he's one of the greatest preachers of all time, but I'm not the one that gets to decide that. There are, there are churches that are larger than mine, and there are churches that are smaller than mine. Just because my church is larger than another pastor's doesn't mean I'm a more effective preacher than he is. And just because a guy goes to pastors a church that's 10 times the size of First Baptist doesn't mean that guy is more effective than I am. God decides that. There's no preacher hall of fame, nor should there be. God is the one who will determine in the end who is most effective. And we can afford to wait until then to decide, to see what God, uh, what God decides. But when he says they are one, he's saying, Paul and Apollos, me and my brother Apollos, we're working toward the same goal. And that's true in any church. Everybody should be working toward the same goal. And so when one succeeds, another rejoices. Again, use that uh, metaphor of the farmhand, of the person uh, growing corn. So if somebody goes through that field and drops the corn seed in its spot and, and covers it up, and then another one comes along and waters that corn seed, and then another one comes along later and weeds the field to keep uh, keep pesky weeds from choking out the plants, and all along there's different people doing different things. They're all working toward the same goal. They're not in competition. The person who waters hopes that the person who planted did it well. The person who weeds hopes that the person who waters does his job right. Because if, if one succeeds, they're all going to succeed. 
They're counting on one another. Do you see what he's saying in verse 8? When one succeeds, they should all rejoice, and that should be our attitude within the church. So then verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So he, he leaves us with two big, broad metaphors, and one of them he's going to carry on into the next passage, which we'll look at next week. But the first one is, the church is God's field. So one important thing to point out is the city of Corinth, the, the region around Corinth, had some very famous vineyards. So uh, even though these were white-collar folks, they understood. A lot of them probably owned some of these vineyards. They didn't work in the vineyards, but they owned them. And, and even if they didn't, they saw the vineyards, and they saw how beautiful they were. Uh, we are like God's vineyard. We've been planted. Our, the, each local church is a vineyard of God, and the church, capital C, is God's ultimate garden. That's where He's working. That's where He's doing what He does. And, and so, again, it's about God's ultimate goal. So, look at it this way. The summer after my senior year of high school, I got a job at uh, an agricultural experiment station. So in my hometown, Texas A&M had, had an experiment station where they would experiment on peanut plants. So an Aggie scientist would come up with a brand new pesticide, for instance, and they would come to this station where we had these peanut plants uh, in these big, big, broad fields, and they would test the pesticide on those plants. So my job for that summer, and I made $3.50 an hour doing it, was to work in the fields all day. So I was basically a farmhand. Now, I'd grown up in the country, and my dad did a little gardening. My grandfather was a dairy farmer, and he always had fields of, of corn and peas and okra and other crops and squash. And so I would go out and help him about once a week during the summertime. But this was the first time in my life where from 8 in the morning to 5 in the evening, every single day or five days a week, I was out in the hot sun working, and I, I can remember coming home in the middle of the summer one day and saying to my mom, this is why I'm going to college, because I am not cut out for a life doing this every day the rest of my existence on this earth. Um, so that was a very educational summer. But here's the point. I worked hard every day in those fields, me and, and other young men and women are my age, and yet nobody in my hometown ever drove past those fields of peanut plants and said, yep, there's Burger's Peanuts over there. Most of them didn't even know I worked there. That was, those were the plants that belonged to Texas A&M. In the same way, no one should say First Baptist Church is Jeff Burger's church. No one should say that um, this church belongs to the chairman of the deacons or the person who's been teaching life group the longest or the person, whoever it might be, who gives the most donations. It doesn't belong to any of us. It belongs to God. Then the second metaphor, the church is God's building. My brother is an architect, and I know for a fact that when a building is built, his name is on it. Uh, my brother designed all designed and rebuilt all the schools in my hometown of Yoakum, Texas. So if you go to Yoakum, if you move there and you put your child in elementary school and kindergarten and you stay there until they graduate high school, they will attend school uh, every level from kindergarten to graduation from high school in a school built by my brother. Now, my brother didn't get out and physically do all the work. He drew it up, though. There were 
There were, there were framers, there were bricklayers, there were painters, there were roofers, there were electricians, but ultimately, he's the one who gets the credit. God is the one who gets the credit when it comes to the church. That's what matters. The church belongs to him. Again, I'm talking about First Baptist Conroe, but I'm also talking about the church universal. Every church on earth of every language, every denomination belongs to him. It is his bride. It is his body. It is his field. It is his building. So what does this mean for us? There are three implications I want to talk about. Uh, for this passage in our lives moving forward. Number one, it should change the way we look at preachers and other spiritual leaders. I know we've talked quite a bit about that in this passage because that's uh, the main subject of the passage. Don't, don't follow a particular pastor or spiritual leader or Christian author. Don't be absolutely loyal to them. The Bible's very clear, and I want to make this point, when you read everything the Bible says about spiritual leaders, the Bible's clear that God wants us to support them. They're worthy of their hire, so we should pay them enough to earn a living. Uh, we, should, we should pray for them. We should respect them. We should even obey them uh, and let them lead us. But, but this passage especially warns against idolatry, idolatry of spiritual leaders, because we're just people. In fact, I'm not, I'm not just a man. I'm a servant. I'm a slave in the field of God, and you should be too. We're all co-workers. We're all co-workers in God's field. We're all co-workers on God's building. I may be framing the place up. You may be uh, laying the bricks, and she may be wiring the place, but we're all working on the same goal. Do you see what I mean? That's how we should look at spiritual leaders. Second thing, it should change the way we look at other churches. Keep in mind, when Paul was writing this, the idea that there would be a, a town like Conroe where there are dozens of different churches, that didn't even occur to the Apostle Paul. In the ancient world, there was one church per town. And if you lived in Corinth, you went to the Corinthian church. If you lived in Antioch, you went to the Antioch church. There was no question. You didn't say, well, you know, Second Baptist Antioch has a better gym than First Baptist. Well, I hear that the music at, you know, the Church of Christ in Corinth is better than the music at the Lutheran Church at Corinth. That didn't exist. And, and so Paul doesn't even address that. And I think if Paul were writing this letter today, he would. I think he would be appalled, in fact, if he came to first century America and he looked around at the competition we tend to have among churches. And, and I'll be honest, it's not so much about denominations anymore as it was when I was a kid, and that's, that's a cause for rejoicing. But it is, it is an issue, and let's be totally honest right now with ourselves. It is an issue that when we hear something good happening at a church that's not our church, that we immediately try to dismiss it or downplay it, or explain it away. Well, you know, they're just growing because they don't really preach the gospel. They just preach a feel-good message, and that's why people are going there. Well, you know, that's just one of those, one of those rock and roll churches, and that's what the kids seem to like, but they don't, they don't get the real stuff there. Is that the truth? I don't know. You don't either. God does. The truth is, when we hear that something good is happening in another church, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. Unless we absolutely know they're preaching outright heresy, we should rejoice. And 
if we hear something bad is happening in another church, we should weep and we should pray for them. Because the truth is, we're not in, in competition with other churches. First Baptist Conroe is not in competition with West Conroe Baptist or Mims Baptist or uh, the Conroe Church of Christ or um, the Ark or the Lutheran Church or the Methodist Church or uh, 3C, which is now part of Champion Forest. We're not in competition with any of those churches. We're all part of the same field. We're all part of the same building, and we should we should treat one another as if we're co-workers in God's field, on God's building. And that brings me to the last point. The last implication is this should change the way we look at ourselves and what our responsibility is within the church. Because the whole idea of planting and watering helps you see we're all supposed to be working toward the same goal. What is that goal? What is the fruit that's being produced? The fruit that's being produced is disciples. Again, you can probably figure out an easy way to make a church big. You can draw a crowd if you have the right kind of talent and the right kind of resources. But discipleship is different. To see someone go from being absolutely rebellious against God to being sold out for Jesus Christ, to see somebody go from being totally self-centered to loving others more than self, to see somebody go from hating who they are to redeemed and renewed and growing into the image of Jesus, that's something I can't do and you can't do, but we should be praying for the power of God to make it happen, and we should be constantly going up to God and saying, okay, Lord, um, what else do I need to do? I, I watered the field. Did I miss anything? I, I planted seed over here. Is there another place you want me to plant? Be more specific. What are you doing right now on an ongoing basis that is intended to produce discipleship, that is intended to help people's lives change? And that's going to depend based on your own spiritual gifts and, and the opportunities God's given you. Uh, you know, you may say, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm glad because I am and I don't frankly need the competition. <laughs> uh, but you have a role to play. What role are you playing? in God's work of producing disciples right here in Montgomery County. If you don't know, ask Him. Ask Him to show you. Ask Him to show you the way and to open the doors so you can see what you should be doing. Uh, let me just close with this. Going back to that experiment station, that job I had the summer after uh, I graduated high school. That was a long, hot summer. and As it went on, I kept getting more and more excited about that summer coming to an end because I was going off to college and I was going to live in the big city of Houston. And I, I can remember very distinctly my last day on the job. And one of the last things that I did, uh, we were part of a team that went out to this one particular field and we had to irrigate it. So that meant grabbing these long sections of pipe that were probably 12 feet long and attaching them to each other and then attaching that pipe to uh, a, a machine that would irrigate the field. And it's been so long, I don't remember all the details. All I know is there were about a half dozen men doing this work together. And because of what I did, because I wasn't paying attention, we got to the end of the job and realized, oh, I messed up. And so everything had to be reversed. 
And I can remember when at that very moment we realized that I had messed everything up and we had to redo all the work. And one of the old guys that worked there, it was old enough to be my grandpa, he looked at me in front of everybody and he said, I'm sure glad it's your last day. Except there was a word between last and day that I can't share with you. You can probably imagine what it was. It was very colorful. And I turned red and I felt awful. And what I, the reason I'm saying that is you and I have a role to play in God's mission of redeeming the world and making disciples. And you have co-workers who are counting on you. You have people not just at First Baptist Conroe, but at every church saying, hey, do your part so we can all work together toward redeeming this world. More importantly, your God is counting on you. He created you for a purpose. Before you were ever born, he had these good works he wanted you to do. So get after the work. And your mission field, our mission field, is counting on you. We need to set aside all the things that divide us, all the things that distract us, and get to the work of making disciples of Jesus because the world is yearning to see a true disciple, yearning to see the movement of God, the kingdom of God, accomplish its perfect purpose. Thank you for joining us. Let me just remind you that this Sunday, uh, this Saturday and Sunday, July 4th is Saturday, we're going to worship together in God's house at First Baptist, and we're going to have a particular a special time of prayer for our nation after the sermon. Uh, the sermon itself is on Daniel's prayer life and how that created uh, a man who made a difference in the world. But we're going to spend some time praying for our nation together. So I hope if you can't physically be there to pray with us, you'll participate online with us because when God's people pray together, good things happen. My daily prayer emails are going out every day this week, and they're all focused on that same subject, on the importance of praying together in a time of national crisis. So if you're not uh, receiving those now, get on our website and subscribe, and let's pray together and see great things happen. Until then, you have a wonderful week. Love you, and God bless you.